Hello and welcome back, Curious to Serious listeners. This is your co-host, Gabby. In this episode, I'm excited to share my conversation with Daniel Tarakoff, who is a partner at Vine Ventures, which is an early stage venture capital fund focused on psychedelics. In this episode, we talk about Daniel's work at Vine Ventures, including what are venture capital funds and how they work. He talks about what makes Vine Ventures different from other venture funds, including their reciprocity pledge to give back 50% of fund profits to organizations in the psychedelic space, and their fundraising efforts with MAPS. We also discuss Daniel's journey from before his time at Berkeley's School of Business to how he landed an internship and full-time job at Vine Ventures. Daniel offers a plethora of advice throughout our conversation, from networking tips to the importance of being persistent in your pursuits. Additionally, Daniel talks about some of the daily challenges of his job and how it's important to discover our ideal working environments so that we can be successful and feel fulfilled in our work. Finally, we wrap up our discussion with a detailed reflection on the future of the psychedelic space, including improvements to psychedelic medicines and treatment protocols, accessibility, and advancements in the diverse treatments of mental health. Be sure to check out the show notes for ways to connect with Daniel as well as other relevant links from our conversation. One last note I want to make on this episode. While we were recording this episode, the best space for Daniel to work in and record was in a coffee shop. So you'll notice some background noises throughout the episode, but I promise you that it doesn't take away from the valuable insight that he has to share with us. Additionally, before we get started, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsor. This podcast wouldn't be here without MAPS, whose support has allowed us to keep the online psychedelic grad community platform free for all of our members, and it allows us to publish these insightful conversations for everyone to enjoy. We also have a new opportunity for our listeners to continue supporting Psychedelic Grad. If you visit the links in the show notes, you will find a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page where you can donate to Psychedelic Grad and help keep the dream alive so we can continue to provide resources and education to our growing community. Finally, thank you to our listeners for joining me in this wonderful conversation with Daniel Tarakoff. I'm sure you'll find it packed with resources and insightful advice. Welcome, Daniel, and thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited for our conversation because I'm going to learn so many new things that I don't know much about, I'm especially on the business side of psychedelics. So thank you so much for, for joining me and sharing all of your knowledge with us today. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So let's just go ahead and jump on in. I'm really interested to hear about Vine Ventures. So can you explain to me what Vine Ventures is and what your role is there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Vine is an early stage venture fund. Uh, we are focused, uh, really started focused very solely on the psychedelic space. We've since expanded a bit into broader neurotech and longevity as well. But um, since we're in a psychedelic focused podcast, I'll, I'll kind of focus on that area. And that remains a large part of our fund. Uh, we're a $25 million fund and we invest in startups across the psychedelics industry. So this is, you know, the full value chain, everything from drug development to uh, digital tools, delivery infrastructure, manufacturing, natural cultivation, all the way through more downstream consumer products that are sort of tangential to the space. Uh, and yeah, we, we kind of look at it all. 
Um, I joined Vine a little over a year ago um, and kind of work across uh, the, the company, working on investments, diligence, running operations, kind of the whole gamut. It's a small team, so I have my hand in, in many sorts of uh, areas of the fund. Awesome. That's really cool to hear. Um, so I don't know much about, you know, f- funds and everything like that. Are there other venture funds within the psychedelic space? And if there are, what makes Vine Ventures similar and different to those other funds? Yeah, there, there surprisingly are. Um, when I first joined Vine, you know, I, I felt super lucky to have found it. I had no idea there was a market for psychedelics, um, let alone you know several funds operating in the space. Um, we work pretty closely with with most of the funds in the space. It's you know there are several funds, but it's still a really small industry and um, growing area. So everyone kind of kind of knows everyone. Um, I would say for Vine and, and what makes us different, uh, a couple of things. You know, one is. We do invest across that full value chain, like I mentioned. So a lot of the funds in the space focus more singularly on the drug development section of the industry. And, you know, I would say the vast majority of funds go toward that aspect. Uh, certainly a lot, of, a lot of our funds go toward that area as well. But we understand that a successful psychedelics industry isn't just the drugs themselves and that there's going to be you know, a whole layer of support that's required across the value chain to, to bring these medicines to patients. So we try to find the different companies that are working across that full spectrum. Um, another area that I would say differentiates us is our reciprocity pledge. So we were founded really from a history of philanthropy. Our founder, Ryan Zur, had been a longtime supporter of uh, the psychedelic space, donating to organizations like MAPS and Usona Institute for several years. And he, you know, around, I think it was 2020, had seen industry starting to emerge and realized that it would make sense to incorporate a fund and start supporting the space, not just philanthropically, but uh, commercially as well as, as the industry formed. And so because of that history of, of sort of philanthropic support over the years, uh, Ryan found that, you know, we could come up with a way of supporting the space that made sense and kind of aligned with that uh, that philanthropic group. And so we created this reciprocity pledge where 50% of our fund's profits, the, the carry that our partners receive, goes into this reciprocity fund and then is redistributed into the space. So that could be into nonprofits, into academic research, into indigenous communities. And the way that those funds are actually redistributed is through the vote of the portfolio entrepreneurs that we invest in. So in other words, we're not the ones who are determining at the end of the day where half of our profits are going. It's the companies, the founders of the companies that we invest in along the way. And so it also you know, gives us incentive to really find people that we're aligned with philosophically on where we want to see the space go and see it unfold. Uh, invest in those people because we know that those are also going to be the people who are determining you know, where where the reciprocity funds are redistributed. And then I would say the last piece of, of kind of what makes us different is just uh, our scientific diligence. I think uh, a lot of people you know, in this space are, are in this space because they're passionate about psychedelics and, and what they can do, um, but inherently also 
you know, may not have a deep science background in evaluating these opportunities, especially when it comes in the drug development side. Uh, it's a it's an area that just requires a lot of scientific diligence and understanding of how clinical trials work, the actual you know mechanisms of action and efficacy of, of you know the different drugs and, and the types of ailments that they're trying to treat. And so you know we brought on uh, a team of people um, both internally who have backgrounds in, in sort of the hard science and understanding what it takes to bring a drug to market as well as a, a broad you know, scientific advisory board that helps us really assess if uh, the, the different companies that we're investing in uh, have a viable chance at, at bringing something to market. That was a really uh, thorough description. I appreciate that. Um, I want to take a minute to kind of break down what exactly funds kind of are, because from my perspective, this is something that's, uh, like I mentioned, I don't know much about. So the way that this works is uh, Vine Ventures goes out and you find different companies, specifically psychedelic companies, and like you said, across the gamut that Vine Ventures wants to invest in. And so then these companies jump on board, you invest in them, you help them uh, stay running and, and grow. And then these companies then get to have a vote in where like you had mentioned with the reciprocity pledge where 50% of those funds go to, um, to other organizations, nonprofits, academics, um, and indigenous groups, um, that kind of reciprocity. Am I understanding that model correctly? Yeah, you are. And maybe just, you know, a, a very brief overview of, of the general like venture capital fund setup and, and how it works. So we have outside investors that um, are you know, just a variety of different investors called LPs, limited partners in the fund, who have decided to put some money into our fund as an investment. We pool that capital together uh, and then we spend that capital investing in these different psychedelic companies and in exchange for our investment, we get a portion of equity in the company. And then the goal is that over time, the company grows, uh, becomes more valuable, and uh, you know, at a later stage, is worth more than when we initially invested. And we own a portion of uh, whatever it's worth at the time that it has an exit. You know, be it uh, it's acquired or it goes public on a, on a stock exchange, etc. There's a variety of ways that you can have an exit. Um, when those funds are then distributed back to us with whatever exit happens, so say a company goes public and they have a massive exit and we own you know a percent of them we get paid that percent and then of that percent that we get paid um, the profits that we take in as vine we donate half of that back into the uh, into the community and those funds that the 50 percent portion is what our founders would then have a say in redistributing uh, to the various organizations that they may be interested in supporting Okay, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for um, for walking me through that. That that really helps me paint a picture of like what that looks like. Um, so thanks for that. I'm curious to know a little bit more about some of the organizations, like the community organizations that that 50% goes back to. I'm just curious to know maybe what some of those organizations are. And I understand that like the the companies that are funded through Vine Ventures, you know, they get to choose, but are they given like a list to choose from? And like, how do you? You know, how does Vine Ventures figure out, like, what is the community, I suppose? Yeah. Um, so to the way that the distributions will work is that they're paid uh, at the end of the fund life once the, uh, the profits have been redistributed. And so uh, that the specific companies receiving the reciprocity pledge haven't been determined yet. The way that it will work is 
uh, it's really up to the portfolio entrepreneurs. So we'll take recommendations from portfolio entrepreneurs that we've invested in, but we'll also provide a list because you know we know many people in the space and um, there's a lot of organizations that we want to support. So we'll provide our recommendations and probably a list of, of organizations that we'd like to see supported, but ultimately it'll be up to the vote of the entrepreneurs that we invest in. So, you know, companies that could fall on that list, it's like organizations such as MAPS, such as USONA, um, some of the long-standing nonprofits in the space, uh, also your academic research organizations. Uh, UCSF, for example, has Neuroscape, uh, which is run by Adam Ghazali and Robin Carhart Harris, and they're doing a lot of interesting research in the psychedelic world. Uh, there's the UC Berkeley Center for Psychedelic Science. Over the past year, I mean, I'm sure you're aware, there's been Know, literally dozens of psychedelic centers popping up back up academic centers across the US and abroad and so all of those would be eligible uh, and then really any nonprofits as well so you know, as an example blessings in the forest or Therasil, um or just you know to name a couple there's you know, a laundry list of ways that this could go and uh, again it'll really be up to, to the vote of our entrepreneurs to decide how it's allocated. Okay, that's very cool. It's interesting to see how, you know, as you name all of the, um, all of these different sectors, essentially, of the psychedelic community, that it's very broad. And I appreciate that you see how broad it is and, and the potential to, you know, give back to so many organizations that do exist in this um, and leaving that decision up to uh, the companies that are being funded through Vine Ventures. So that's really an interesting model. Um, I like that. Something that you mentioned, too, that I want to bring up is MAPS, right? So from what I understand, Vine Ventures is helping MAPS fundraise, correct, to raise money for the PTSD research to commercialize MDMA for PTSD. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, so we worked with MAPS uh, starting beginning of last year on a way that they could raise a substantial amount of money for their ongoing efforts to commercialize MDMA for PTSD. Um, the result of those conversations was what we're calling the Regenerative Financing Vine. And this is a fundraising effort that we put together. Uh, it's MAPS's first commercial fundraise, meaning you know, MAPS has been this nonprofit that's existed for you know, three and a half decades at this point, 36 years technically in operation. Uh, and they've run you know, one of the most successful nonprofits of all time run fully off of philanthropy dollars uh, to date. But as they're approaching, you know, the final stages of commercializing MDMA, uh, the costs for bringing MDMA through the remaining clinical trials and then actually setting up the commercial infrastructure to roll this out uh, are becoming, you know, really substantial. And um, philanthropy is not going to get them the entire way there. So uh, the regenerative financing fund is set up to raise that we're we're hoping we'll bring in $70 million from apps. Um, and the way that we set this up was from the beginning, you know, we talked to maps about how we could get them this money and what the optimal structure would be to do so. And one of the things from the beginning that was off the table was doing an equity raise. So as I mentioned like before, how lines, typical investments go, you purchase, you make an investment in, in a, a startup and, exchange for that investment, you get a portion of equity or ownership in that company. And then as the company scales, you retain that portion of ownership and hopefully the value goes up and that's how you make your money. In the case of MAPS, um, we wanted to make it so that 
uh, equity was off the table. And so uh, the way that MAPS is structured today is there's the, the, the nonprofit organization MAPS who wholly owns 100% of a for-profit entity called the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. And the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, MAPS PBC, is the organization that's taking MDMA through the trials and will eventually do the commercial rollout. Um, a standard way of, of raising money would be MAPS PBC could go out to market and say, we want to do an equity raise and they could raise a bunch of money from investors and in exchange they give up a portion of the ownership that MAPS has to outside investors. But the problem that causes is you then have outside money and outside ownership and influence in how the company's operating. And MAPS has this long-standing history of running as a nonprofit and having full control over how they run their operations and how they scale. And we thought it would be really interesting and really important for MAPS to retain full ownership over uh, over their rollout as they scale MDMA to patients. So what that what that means is that MAPS can just continue to fulfill its mission of, um, of scaling access to MDMA to as many patients that need it worldwide without feeling the outside price pressures that external investors inherently bring to the table. Uh, so, you know, you see it often with the world of venture capital. You have investors come on board and as the company grows, whatever space it's in, whatever it's selling, there's pressures to increase your revenue, cut your costs, become more and more profitable over time so that the investors can make more money. And the way that we structured this deal left equity completely off the table so that MAPS never had to compromise as it brings MDMA to market. It can really you know, fully commit itself to keeping costs as low as possible for patients and making sure that as many people can access MDMA as possible without the price pressure that you might typically see uh, from venture capital firms or other outside investors. So that's the high level idea. I'm happy to go into kind of how it was structured in a different way as well, if, if that's helpful, but I'll, I'll stop there for a second. I think that was a really great explanation. And I, I'm really glad that you touched on sometimes some of those power dynamics that you see when it comes to um, investors and when they gain equity in a company, that means that they kind of have a say in what can happen. And, and like you mentioned, like price points and stuff like that. And then talking about how the model that you use with maps is different um, and it helps them maintain control and, and in the way that they have for so many years. Um, so I think that was very clear and very well explained. So I appreciate that. Are there any other organizations within the psychedelic space that Vine Ventures is interested in creating more of that MAPS kind of model in fundraising where equity isn't a part of it? Or are there other organizations that Vine Ventures is working with that it has that same model? Uh, so to date, no, but I would say it's been a really interesting sort of experiment that that we've run with MAPS and, and seen how you know we're able to raise still a substantial amount of funding in a way that's non-dilutive uh, to the organization. And we hope that, you know, it's an, it serves as inspiration for other organizations, be it nonprofits or, or even, you know, certain for-profits when it makes sense to come up with alternative ways of raising capital. Um, you know, we're pretty experimental and open-minded when it comes to supporting uh, companies in the space. And so, you know, a lot of times, depending on the organization, depending on the needs, equity funding just makes sense. But 
uh, I do hope that this model can serve as an example for future organizations that might be interested in exploring it. Uh, and just to provide a, a just quick bit of color on it, just because it didn't really explain the way that the, the MAPS fundraise is set up, uh, it's a revenue share arrangement. So uh, instead of us taking an ownership percent of the company, uh, the investors who put money behind MAPS now will receive a percent of MAPS's revenue once it's able to commercialize and bring MDMA to market, which is expected at the end of 2023 next year. Uh, and so for a, a period of time, uh, just flat percent of whatever MDMA or MDMA-related revenue that MAPS brings in will be paid out to the investors uh, for their upfront contribution. And then that will sunset uh, over a period of time as well of, uh, of eight years. So following that eight-year time frame, uh, that that obligation of MAPS to pay back investors will completely go away. And any future revenue that they bring in from MDMA or sort of the new products that they are bringing to market in the future uh, will will not be subject to that. So it provides this nice bridge of, of financing upfront that uh, doesn't stick with apps forever. It allows them to uh, kind of operate, get to the scale that they need to get, but still retain full ownership of the organization. And yeah, I hope it. I hope it. Um, you know, is adopted by other people when it makes sense to. It doesn't make sense in every case, but um, I think people in the space and in general in the venture world should be open to new types of, of uh, investing and, and financing companies. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I don't have a lot of literacy when it comes to this topic. Um, it's really interesting to hear how there are different models. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point that, um, you know, what works for this particular situation with MAPS might not work with other organizations, but it hopefully it encourages other um, other firms to look at, you know, potential options to help fund um, organizations in, in different ways. Because I never realized that there is such a diversity of ways to make that happen. So um, that's really interesting to learn about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you can get pretty creative with it, right? Um, so for, for MAPS's case, for example, another feature of, of the raise is we embedded a similar mechanism to the reciprocity component of uh, our fund itself, where as MAPS over time hits certain revenue milestones, so you know, reach a certain amount of revenue that they're able to hit by a specific timeline uh, once they begin the rollout, the revenue share percent that the investors get actually comes down. So it builds an incentive in it for MAPS to work harder at scaling this as fast as they can, they'll owe less money to investors, and the percent that comes down will be funneled back to MAPS to continue their work and continue investments into other areas of interest, such as alternative therapies and alternative treatment areas beyond PTSD that they're working to fund. So you can do a lot of different things, just, you know, requires some creativity and, and thinking about what incentives you can put into play to make sure that everyone's you know driving toward the same goals. Yeah, that's incredible. I didn't realize how much creativity goes into business models and business relationships even. Um, so that's really interesting. Thank you so much for sharing that. I've, I've learned so much already. <laughs> sure. Um, so I want to ask you some questions about kind of how you ended up at Vine Ventures. But before we do, I just want to make sure that there's nothing else that you want to touch on before we switch topics here. No, it's cool with me. Okay, cool. So, all right. So we know what you do at Vine Ventures. Um, but from what I understand, 
you actually, you attended the Berkeley School of Business, right? And you ended up leaving there. So talk about how you ended up at the Berkeley School of Business, what made you leave, and what was all of that about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, trying to back up a little bit, uh, you know, my background was really entirely in the business space. I went to University of Michigan as an undergrad and studied business. And then I moved to New York. I was living there for five years. I was working in strategy consulting. And it was a great launch pad to my career, a great way to learn a lot of business fundamentals. But kind of got to a point after a few years in where I felt like I was just getting in a comfortable lifestyle, you know, felt like I was able to live the life I kind of wanted, but I was not really happy with work. I was just kind of working during the week to get by and then going and living my life on the weekend. And it was fun for a while, but I I think I got to a point where I realized I'm getting older. I I haven't really found exactly what I want to do. And I could kind of continue down this path for a while and, you know, have fun, but I've saw how quickly it wasn't really feeling like it was going to bring meaning into my life and make me kind of happy long term. So that was what pushed me to go get my MBA. Uh, I moved out west in sort of the height of the pandemic, uh, started uh, everything virtually, um, moved out to Berkeley in August of 2020 and started at, at UC Berkeley in the MBA program. And my first year of the program, I, I knew I wanted to do venture capital. That was sort of my focus area. And I was also really interested in mental health broadly. One part portion of that interest was because of, of psychedelics, but um, more broadly, I was just, you know, always been interested in the human mind and found it fascinating that, you know, we all operate off the same hardware, but live completely different lived experiences and lives. And um, yeah, I was kind of interested in digging into that space. And as a part of that, I was, you know, on the professional side, recruiting for venture capital positions. And on the personal side, I really started talking to a lot of people in the psychedelic space and just wanted to see what was happening there. And, you know, when I was first looking into it, it still didn't really feel like an industry was emerging yet. Uh, but it, it seemed like some activity was picking up and enough to connect with people who were similarly exploring that area. And so I had this idea that, you know, on the side, I would start this uh, psychedelic business group. And I was in undergrad at the University of Michigan, um, also in the business school there. There was, there was no cannabis group, nothing like that, until maybe my senior year, right, when I was graduating, and that stuff was, was being formed. And as I was reflecting on that and looking across business schools, uh, you know, today, all of them pretty much have cannabis organizations, uh, student run clubs, sometimes more officially sanctioned by the schools. And a lot of people are drawn to uh, specific schools to pursue careers in cannabis or to pursue the networks that they bring. And I thought it's interesting. It's kind of where, you know, psychedelics were where cannabis was when I was an undergrad, where there's not really anything there yet. Uh, there seems to be interest and people talk about it, but there's not really any official club. And so I thought it would be just a fun side project to start uh, the first psychedelic business club. And so as a part of that, I was contacting a lot of different people in the space, just kind of connecting with people, learning about their interests and, and you know what they were building, what they were focused on. And through that process, I met a lot of really interesting people and eventually got connected to the team at Vine, which was 
the first kind of time I got in touch with them. Uh, at the beginning, it was really just me seeing if someone from the Vine team wanted to speak on a panel I was putting together on the business of psychedelics, uh, which they did speak on. And after that, they were like, hey, you know, we have an opportunity. If you're interested in, in interning, you could do that. Um, wasn't even really something I was actively looking for at the time. Uh, I found it to be an interesting opportunity. I didn't really have anything else in, in sort of the venture landscape yet. And I figured, why not intern for them and you know do it during the school year and see how it goes, uh, just keeping an open mind. And yeah, that kind of led to the start of my career with them. I, I interned through the school year. Uh, that turned into my summer internship. And over the summer, I just got to work with the team in person, went deeper and deeper into the space, did a lot of work learning the space and connecting with others and seeing how much momentum it had behind it. And by the end of the summer, I had an offer to just join them full time. And to me, you know, a lot of factors go into whether someone would make this decision or not. But for me, for a lot of reasons, it made sense. And I decided to ultimately drop out of the MBA program and just stick with Vine full time. And uh, yeah, it's been a little over a year now uh, full time and it's been a, a great decision. No regrets yet. And actually, I think um, if I hadn't left uh, the, the MBA program when I did, I'm not sure I would have had all the opportunities now that I do have within Vine, able to you know lead a lot of the work with the Maps deal, able to see the industry progress and, and support a lot of the founders that we've been able to over the last year or so. And so I'm, I'm super grateful that I had that chance and really happy that I kind of took that leap of faith. Oh, I love how you just uh, described it as a leap of faith. And um, and I think that's really useful for our listeners uh, to hear your story because, you know, you were in this formal program and it was going well and then you got this opportunity and you had to make this, I'm sure it was a challenging decision weighing your options, you know, to stay and, and finish the MBA or to, you know, take this full-time job with Fine Ventures and uh, I know personally thinking about that decision, like it's hard to not like beat myself up over wanting to like leave the formal education, but, um, but recognizing that you took this leap of faith and it seems to really be paying off and you're happy with it and you're learning from it. And it, for you, it was the right decision. So I really like this example of a pathway that, you know, listeners who don't know what they're doing, or maybe they find themselves in a similar position where they have to make a challenging decision like this. Um, maybe they can find the courage to make that leap of faith in whatever direction that is. So I'm really love how you described it like that. Yeah. And I would say, you know, for, I know this is really the core of, of curious to serious is right. Like people and in academic positions still thinking about their futures and, and if they want to make a career out of this, if they can make a career out of this. And, you know, my take is, I, again, I had no idea that the psychedelics industry was where it was at when I was first getting involved. I had no idea there was a psychedelic venture capital firm, let alone several psychedelic venture capital firms. And I think... You know, in retrospect, what really served me well was really just following my passions and interests and talking to a bunch of different people. Um, I think if you find an area that particularly drives you, you look for people uh, in your networks or outside of your network who you, you could just even cold reach out to, which was most of the people that I ended up connecting with was just pure cold emails or reach outs on LinkedIn and just find people to have conversations with. Don't look for things you can get out of those conversations, but just 
you know, have open discussion, show that you're passionate and excited about a space, ask people for advice and thoughts on, you know, given your background, where you could take things, um, give people ideas on where you're trying to take things. And I feel like, you know, the natural process of, of that type of networking and connection just can lead you to some pretty interesting places. Um, you know, maybe it doesn't lead anywhere and that's fine too. You had some really interesting conversations with people about a topic that you found really interesting. So, um, if that's the worst case scenario, then so be it. But yeah, I think you might surprise yourself in, in what you can achieve and unlock uh, just by finding people who share your common interests and, and a desire to talk about them. I think that's really great advice that you give. Um, and I, again, I really like that you pinpoint that some of those conversations, maybe they don't necessarily lead anywhere, but one, it gives you practice in having those conversations. Right. And two, um, it just, it helps you network and, and maybe that conversation doesn't lead anywhere in that moment, but maybe down the road, you reach out to that person again, maybe they're doing something and uh, you end up reconnecting and a new conversation leads somewhere. And networking is really one of the, I'd say, most common pieces of advice that is given on our podcast. So um, hopefully at this point, our listeners are really tapping into that because networking is so important. Um, psychedelic grad is built on networking in many ways too. Um, so it's great that you give that piece of advice and it's perfect too, because I was going to ask you, you know, what advice would you give our listeners if you could give them anything? The one other thing I would just say, so, you know, I'm not sugarcoating it either is like, you know, a lot of things don't, don't pan out and don't work out. And you have to be okay with that as part of the process. I mean, I had, probably north of 100 conversations when I was first getting going with people in every facet of the psychedelic space, the clinical side, the legal side, the research side, on the business side. Um, and a lot of them went nowhere. A lot of them, you know, were quote, quote, wastes of time. But at the end of the day, I still made an interesting connection. I still had an interesting conversation. Um, I'd also say, you know, the things that you think might bring you value in your career and your pursuits might not end up being the things that are valuable. So, you know, as an example for myself, one of my, you know, recruiting tactics really to get into the venture capital world was I started a newsletter. I wrote about different companies in the mental health space. I interviewed a bunch of founders in the mental health space. I followed the different investments that were happening. I followed different news uh, and wrote about that. And it was a huge time commitment. It was one of the big things that I spent a lot of my time during the MBA on. And I thought, you know, this is going to be my way in. I'll establish my brand in, in the mental health field and I'll make all these connections. And this will be, you know, how I get a, a job in the space. And ultimately, it's not at all what connected me to the team at Vine. My Vine conversation came about through, you know, a random connection I had met you know, ones who then offered to connect me to someone else who offered to connect me to someone else. It was like this like third or fourth kind of like connection. And uh, it was not something I was even looking for from that connection. That, that one was like a total just interest in connecting and learning about, you know, what you're up to. And I'll tell you what I'm up to, just sort of a general, um, you know, informational call. And that's what ended up leading to, to my career now versus this newsletter that I like poured this labor of love into and took so much of my time up and was great and was an awesome experience. And, and I continue actually to, to work on it. But uh, what I thought I would get out of that is not what I got out of it. I'm still glad I did it. I've made a lot of interesting connections out of it, but 
I would just, you know, hammer that point home. It's like you got to experiment and try different things to put yourself out there, but don't set too much of an expectation on any one specific avenue because uh, you really never know what's going to work out. Luck plays a big role in it. And you just have to be persistent across a lot of different pursuits. That's really great advice, too. And I think it circles back around to something that you had mentioned earlier about keeping an open mind, you know, when you don't set those uh, strict expectations, you can keep an open mind and kind of see where things take you and kind of ride the wave in essence um, and see what happens. So again, wonderful advice. Um, Thinking about your journey, you know, you'd mentioned networking was a really big part of it, writing cold emails, having informal conversations. Um, Those are kind of the things that you did. Can you talk about any of the particular skills that you found were really useful in working through your journey and figuring your way throughout the psychedelic space? Yeah, I would say, you know, I think less than skills, it's really just persistence. Um, So for example, persistence in the way that I just described on a networking front, like continuously talking to people and not getting discouraged when things don't seem like they're going well, putting yourself back out there, continuing to have conversations, Um, but also persistence in subject matter expertise. So, you know, as I got into the role, you know, my background, again, is totally on the business side. So uh, being able to understand the psychedelic space uh, and a lot of the science that goes into it has been a big learning curve for me, right? Like I I didn't have an undergraduate science background, didn't even have that heavy of a, of a high school science background. I mean, somewhat, but, you know, nothing crazy. I, I didn't end up going too deep into, into that world. And to then be immersed in uh, an organization that's investing in startups who are essentially, you know, a lot of them at least, working on, on early stage drug development. There's a lot of words and a lot of, you know, terminology that I hadn't been exposed to before. And so I think persistence really comes up, again, just in, in reading and immersing yourself in uh, as much content as you can, being open to, um, to I think, reading about things and uh, exposing yourself to topics from different angles can be a positive way of going about it. So uh, that came through also, you know, my networking front, as I mentioned, I talked to people on the legal side and the the clinical side and the research side and the business side, I think that also comes into play as I, you know, research companies and do due diligence on companies that I want to invest in, whether it's talking to uh, different psychedelic investors and, you know, sharing our thoughts and getting their thoughts on specific companies, whether it's, you know, talking to different competitors and uh, hearing about their approaches to maybe developing drugs or, or setting up infrastructure for the psychedelic space and how, you know, their philosophy on how they see this unfolding, comparing that against different peoples that I'm connecting with, um, reading things that may not seem especially relevant to a specific investment that I'm making, but might give me a broader perspective on the field and understand how a specific company might fit into the picture of how the space evolves over the next five, 10 years, like a certain open-mindedness and just persistence in just constantly taking in new information and trying to understand how this space is going to unfold, what the big challenges are ahead um, and how they can be solved for. I think that's, that's what's served me well. I think that's, again, really useful advice for our listeners. In terms of like 
the the things that you would read or the other ways that you would, you know, absorb all of this knowledge, were there any particular um, outlets that you would go to or even now that you continue to go to to kind of keep up with what's going on in the psychedelic space that you could recommend to our listeners? Yeah, for sure. I think I try to just subscribe to as many different ones as possible. So there's the trip report by this guy named Zach Hagney recently got purchased by, by Beckley waves and, and he continues, Zach continues to run it. He's a really sharp thinker and, and puts out some interesting thoughts on the space. It's a newsletter. Uh, there is another newsletter that the UC Berkeley for uh, Berkeley center for psychedelic science puts out called the microdose uh, that I think is a pretty good one. Uh, and they put out, you know, weekly, I think, uh, coverage of different news that comes out of the space, different updates on regulations. Um, I do try to follow some of the legal updates, particularly happening in Oregon as that space opens up, um, but also you know, across the country. There's a lot of different states that are that are putting forward different bills to have some sort of um, you know, decriminalization or potentially legalization of uh, psychedelic compounds. And so following the latest sort of regulations and those regulations is helpful. Uh, there's a lot of business resources. Psychedelic Alpha, they, they used to be psilocybin alpha, now psychedelic alpha. Um, there's uh, the Business Trip podcast, which uh, is run by another psychedelic venture fund called SciMed Ventures, who are great and um, do some really interesting interviews. Um, i trying to think what else. Yeah, I, I think that's a lot of the gist of, of how I get my psychedelic specific news. Um, beyond that, just following a lot of the different academic centers and seeing what type of research and, and clinical trials and things like that, that they're working on, um, trying to keep up to date with different scientific publications and articles that come out you can do, you know, PubMed searches for those types of things. Um, and yeah, once you plug into a variety of these different sources, you, start to see others pop up. You get connected with sort of some of the key thought leaders. Um, a lot of them, there's a lot of interesting people to follow on Twitter. You know, you can go deep in it and find a lot of a lot of people across the board that put out interesting thoughts. And um, yeah, the, the deeper you go, the more people you find. And I feel like my, my inbox is, is sort of full of um, a variety of sources these days. That's great to know. I think those are all be very useful resources. Um, I imagine all of our listeners are scurrying around the internet to sign up to all of the newsletters now. <laughs> I think one question I, I'd like to ask a lot of the guests that we have on the podcast is um, what particular challenges have you faced along your journey and how did you overcome them? It's a good, good question. I would say... You know, honestly, like every day is a challenge in in this organization and in this new kind of setup that I'm in. Uh, you know, this is my first time working at a venture capital fund, and so uh, a lot of the daily challenges are tied to just this you know new type of, of position that I'm in and getting used to what it takes to run a venture capital fund, let alone one in the psychedelic space, and so. You know, all of the sort of operational work that it entails, all of the sort of uh, constant networking, connecting with different founders and figuring out new ways of finding new founders that are 
that are already involved in the space or thinking about getting involved in the space, doing diligence on those on those companies. Like it's new challenges every day. No no one day has been the same for me. Um, it's you know really autonomous work. It's pretty different from my prior job that had a lot more structure to it. And so I think just getting comfortable with the autonomy and getting comfortable with this just sort of, you know, free form way of tackling each day and trying to think through how can I make the best use of my time? How can I connect with, um, you know, other interesting people in this space and make sure that I'm on top of how this space is unfolding. I mean, one of the things that is really important for uh, my role is to understand the psychedelic industry and you know its current state and where it's going from here and who are the key people that are that are working to make it happen um, we're the founders that are coming up with the you know next big company that's gonna really drive this space forward and so it's kind of a constant um you know challenge to keep up to pace with how the space is unfolding it keeps things really exciting keeps things um you know, really fresh and fun every day, but it's, it's not really a position or a job where you can kind of achieve something and coast for a while. It's something that you kind of constantly need to be reading, constantly need to be connecting with people. Um, I love that type of stuff. I know it's not for everyone. Um, it can be exhausting and tiring, but, um, you know, if you find yourself doing it for a space that you're really passionate and interested in, then it doesn't feel too cumbersome. First, thank you for, you know, being open about like every day is a challenge and uh, kind of speaking to what that means. Um, I think the fact that you point out that kind of this like uh, continuous having to keep up with the space and see what's going on, you know, isn't doesn't fit everyone's kind of work personality. And I think that's really useful to think about and reflect on is like, you know, what is our individual work personalities, what kind of work environment is best for us. And that can really help shape the direction that we want to take in the psychedelic space and and finding um, a position or a job or a direction that helps to kind of fit that, that best suited work environment for us. So I think that's something really important that you speak to in that. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's trade-offs, whatever you do, right? I mean, work is work. It's always going to have some downsides to it. I feel super grateful and super lucky to be where I'm at. I, you know, in many ways, this is, this is totally my dream job. It's, it's awesome. Um, but it's not like a perfect happy all the time situation, right? It's, it's still has its daily struggles to it. Um, the, the lack of structure, uh, the, the sort of, you know, constant need to be on and to, really make sure that I'm staying up to date on everything is a pressure that uh, that I didn't necessarily feel in my last job. Um, not having the structure of every day makes me kind of constantly question myself. Am I working hard enough today? Did I get enough done? Did I push this forward enough? It um, It's a different level of pressure that I haven't felt before. And these aren't all like great things, right? They lead to stress. They lead to like lack of sleep. Um, they're, you know, they don't make every day a, a joy ride, but when I think, you know, relative to where I was in consulting, there was aspects of consulting I really liked, but overall, after doing it for five years, I just wasn't passionate about the subject matter and I found it to be really bureaucratic and the company that I was at. And so, you know, 
you you always like think that the grass might be greener on the other side and then you get there and you realize that every place has its pros and cons um every place in every kind of like stage of life is going to bring you stress in its own way i think you just have to you know learn yourself over time and learn what trade-offs you're willing to accept and what downsides you're willing to accept uh for the the benefits that a certain situation brings you and it takes trial and error but you know hopefully each situation and experience you get you build up um you know what you like more and more and you can get yourself to better and better positions over time yes i love so much of what you said um especially kind of recognizing that no matter what position you're in you know you're going to have stress and trying to figure out what trade-offs and what benefits and what challenges are you willing to accept and uh and kind of carry in whatever position you choose. So all, again, very useful information um, and considerations for our listeners as they think about where they want to go and what path they want to take and where they want to end up in the end. So very insightful. Thank you. Sure. So I am interested in rounding out our conversation, talking about the future of the psychedelic field. But before we move on, just want to check if there's anything else that you want to add about your journey or any other pieces of insightful advice that you want to share. Uh, no, I think that's uh, I think that covers it. We touched on a lot. <laughs> yeah, we did. There's some pieces of gold in there for sure. All right. So let's go ahead and kind of look to the future of the psychedelic field. Thinking about the next maybe five or 10 years, what do you hope to see develop in the field and how do you see your role taking shape within that future? Sure. Um, no, I would say there's a couple of big ways that I see the space unfolding. I mean, one is just practically speaking, the, the psychedelic medicines themselves improving. And so um, not just the drug development, but I do think we're going to see, you know, this like next generation of psychedelic compounds being created where, um, you know, negative side effects that come with some of the known psychedelic compounds can be reduced or removed. Um, they can be, you know, adapted to be more palatable for uh, shorter treatment durations where it, it's going to allow the treatments to be more scalable to people. Um, and overall, yeah, just the treatment protocols being evolved and being improved. So I think the actual treatments, the treatment protocols, how they're delivered, I think we're going to see a lot of innovation and changes on, and we already are. Um, and to, I guess, get a, a bit more specific on that front, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways that this can happen. I think, you know, one is, is, just the existing known compounds. So, you know, in, in Oregon next year, psilocybin will be accessible, um, magic mushrooms. And then uh, hopefully by the end of the year, we'll see uh, MAPS MDMA approval for uh, PTSD. So next year is really like a hallmark year for kicking off uh, the, the psychedelic space. Uh, markets are opening up a lot more and the known psychedelics uh, that are going to start you know, being um, being more accessible for patients are going to begin to to be available. Um, then, following that, you know, longer term down the road, which is already in process, is a huge slate of companies that are working on these next generation compounds. So, um, you know, some are trying to just develop novel compounds that that are five HD two A agonists and um, create better more effective drugs that 
create the intended consequences of increased neuroplasticity and um, you know bring bring new types of treatments to people, but reduce those those negative side effects that, that I talked about. There's other companies that are taking more more drastic approaches, um, such as Delix, for example, creating something that they call psychoplastogens. So um, similarly, the, these take it a step further and, and try to completely remove the hallucination aspect of, of psychedelic uh, medicines. And so um, there's a little bit of you know, debate around whether those types of compounds are, are going to find success and have the same type of uh, intended consequence that um, that existing known compounds have, you know, the, the debate around is it is it the actual hallucination or change in perception that gives someone a profound experience and allows them to make a big change in their life, or is it really something at the like just purely biochemical level that you change this? Um, this aspect, you can have this intended result um, and, you know, create a specific type of compound that can, that can solve a specific type of uh, mental health ailment. Um, that'll, you know, to be seen, um, clinical trials are underway and, you know, I'm, I'm all in favor of a variety of companies taking a variety of approaches to develop, you know, whatever types of treatments can help people. And so I think a lot of innovation in that space and just sort of the drug development front We'll also see a lot of improvements to uh, to measurement and to just broader neurotechnology that can help inform how drugs are developed. So, um, you know, one example is is Osmine, which is a software solution in the psychedelic space, uh, and you know they they are a broader software solution for mental health space at large, but um, are one of the largest in um, in providing software for ketamine providers and they're really taking a data-driven approach capturing as much data as possible on patients to understand how different patients are being affected by different ketamine treatments once other psychedelic drugs come to market they'll be able to capture that data as well and i think just as more and more data is captured in more and more um, you know legitimate and structured ways we're gonna have a lot more insights into what treatments work well for what types of patients um, and it's going to just improve the way that treatment protocols are developed and which patients get funneled to which types of treatments. Um, another example of this type of personalization is, is alto neuroscience. So they combine um, different, uh, different biomarkers from you know, behavioral tests mixed with, uh, mixed with EEG scans and try to segment patient populations into specific subtypes and then say, okay, is a specific subtype of, of patient better suited for a specific type of treatment? They're not solely focused on psychedelic medicines, but they're focused on broader neuropsychiatric medicines and CNS drug discovery. And, you know, their strategy is if we can better, you know, subtype a patient population and say, you know, there's you know, patient population A, B, and C, and they each respond differently to different types of drugs, Maybe if we revisit drugs that Big Pharma maybe, you know, shelved years ago because they did a clinical trial and they realized that um, the drug failed maybe in phase two and wasn't reaching the efficacy rates that they needed it to to move forward. Well, was that because the drug itself didn't work or was that because it was being applied to a broad patient population who had some fundamentally different things about how their minds worked? And if you 
revisit those drugs and apply them to a particular type of person who has a particular genetic profile or a particular behavioral-based response, um, can the drug actually be effective? And I think we're going to see a lot of approaches like that where we get better data, better technology, and are, uh, as a result, able to you know, develop better treatments for, for patients. So that's, that's like the one huge area. It's, you know, the better drugs and treatment protocols. The other just like broad area is accessibility more, you know, more generally. So making care more, you know, easier to access, uh, lowering costs of care. And that's going to happen through a variety of things. There's, you know, just the regulatory and legal challenges. So, you know, how do you actually create a market that isn't going to be shut down by, by legal regulations? Um, part of that is through influencing public perception, um, public opinion. But a big part of it is, is just getting your hands dirty in the lawmaking and the regulatory aspect of it. Um, there's a lot of amazing people who, who are working on that. Um, Catherine Tucker, Mason Marks, and, and a variety of others who are really putting the work in needed to make psychedelic drugs more, more accessible to all sorts of different patients. Um, there's a whole lot to be solved on the IP and patent front, um, figuring out what's defensible, what's going to be defensible long term, um, what what you know strategies on the IP front aren't defensible, and um, and are just sort of these these grabs that uh, are ultimately going to get overturned. Um, you know, a lot of this, not, not necessarily sexy stuff, but important stuff to setting the foundation for a successful industry. Getting insurance coverage, getting more integration with existing health systems, getting providers on board and educated and able to communicate the, the positive benefits to, to different patients that they see. Um, all of this is going to be important in, in making you know, the field come to life. Um, so yeah, I would say the better drugs and treatment protocols, the accessibility at large, and then maybe the, the final piece I would touch on is I think that you know there's a lot of tangential areas to the psychedelic space that are going to be interesting as they develop. They're not exactly you know getting psychedelics in the hands of, of patients or consumers, but um, opening their minds to new healing modalities and ways of, of bettering yourself. So um, a couple examples there. Uh, there's a, a really cool company called Trip. They're um, the leading VR um, and AR mental health uh, meditation app. So um, as VR and, and headsets like that become more, more available and, and more accessible, uh, Trip creates some really interesting programming to create this sort of mindfulness meditation experience in virtual reality, take you out of your environment and into a space where you can just get away from your problems and come from a, from a fresh perspective and a different type of um, viewpoint, similar aspects to what psychedelics do, but not actually taking uh, a psychedelic compound. Uh, another example is a company called Othership. Uh, they are a really interesting company that I think is going to take off over the next few years. They're their first uh, location is based in Toronto, and they are a hot cold therapy, breathwork, um, kind of new healing modality space. Uh, they have a 50 person sauna. Uh, they do, you know, breathwork classes, meditation classes. They have hot cold therapy. You can book the space out and just go for individual sessions. You can join group classes. They're creating a broader community around it that's you know super cult following where 
people just go and, and have this craving for a space that they can build community and connect with people, have real intimate, real connections that aren't centered around alcohol, but are centered around, um, you know, just well-being and improving yourself and being conscious about, you know, how you make better changes and, and you know, improve your well-being, your mental well-being, your physical well-being. Um, I think people really crave that connection and um, finding community that, you know, uplifts them in a, in a more healthy way. Uh, and Othership is really focused on that. They'll, they'll be opening new locations in, in the U.S., in New York and L.A. Uh, this year and next year. So uh, it's a really exciting time to see how different organizations are tackling mental health more broadly, making it more accessible from different angles. And I know it's getting a bit beyond just the pure psychedelic space, but I just find that, um, you know, mental health is, is a massive crisis in you know, the world. Everyone's affected by it in some way. Everyone's got a brain. You might think you're perfectly, you know, healthy and that your mind is fit and fine. And, and that's cool. And, and if you are, that, that's awesome. Um, but there's always ways you can improve your mental fitness, ways that you can, uh, you know, be more thoughtful about how you process your thoughts, how you plan for your future, uh, how you connect with your relationships, with the people around you and help people around you live better lives as well as yourself. And, I think as more and more people adopt uh, thinking about their mental health as a core aspect of their health and, and well-being, they're going to be seeking all sorts of, of ways to treat that, um, be it psychedelics or not. So I'm, I'm excited about all the ways that different companies are tackling that. That was a very well-rounded answer. <laughs> that was great. I know that was a lot. No, I think it was great. You touched on a lot of important things. You know, one of the things that you bring up is... Um, Oh gosh, there's so many. I had to take a few notes. Um, one of them is just this idea of diversity in so many ways, right? Just looking at one in terms of treatment and protocols, recognizing neurodiversity, recognizing um, human diversity, recognizing that some people might want an experience that does not include that hallucinogenic effect of psychedelics, which I think is is interesting because, uh, and I know I've talked about it on the podcast before, but my my dissertation research looks at people who have transformative psychedelic experiences at music festivals. So it almost plays to the flip side of that, where people are really looking for that more um, hallucinogenic effect to have that type of experience. But also, I think what you bring up is, is something important is like, you know, just because there are people that want that doesn't mean everyone wants that. I can't imagine like if my grandmother wanted to trip, she would want that aspect to it. There are individuals that want the benefits of it, but not necessarily want to have... Um, all of the other things that kind of come with it. And, and the future of psychedelics has a pathway that it might be able to provide that for people. So I think that was really important, um, recognizing that diversity. I think something else that was really interesting that you bring up too is uh, this idea of the diverse avenues where people are going to be needed in the future of psychedelics. And even now, you know, um, as it continues to develop, honestly, pretty quickly. And, and the idea of what you said is not all of these avenues are sexy, but they're important, right? So um, people developing technology for databases and keeping track of um, how treatments are working and, and that kind of thing, um, doing policy-related work, you know, the insurance work, educating doctors to help them properly convey these sometimes very complex psychedelic ideas to patients so that they understand potential for treatment so they can make educated decisions around this. So I think that's really important too. And that one's, that one really kind of sticks out to me, hopefully for our listeners, 
just because I hope that they can recognize like not everyone has to be a psychedelic therapist, right? There's so many other avenues and we need so many different positions filled as the field develops and we look into the future of it. Um, especially like you had mentioned around issues of insurance and access to healthcare, um, making it affordable, making it accessible. It's all super important, even if it's, again, it's not sexy, right? So all really important things. There's so much more in there. I can't even remember it all, but it was all really great. And I think part of it is to kind of go back to something that you had mentioned earlier is because you are so, uh, you take so much time to read up on what's going on in the field now. It really gives you that advantage to speak to all these different ways that you see the field developing in the future. So I think that's incredibly insightful. And uh, I know I appreciate it. That was really informative and made me think about hmm, what's what can really happen and what are all the ways that things can go and um, what are all the directions where psychedelics are going to develop, um, especially this kind of ideal of in, entangling mental health treatment with psychedelic and non-psychedelic related modalities. Uh, super important and interesting. It might actually be very interesting for people who are interested in psychedelics but are looking for a pathway um, until they're legalized and, and they feel more comfortable getting into the space. That makes me kind of think about that too. So, so much to think yeah. about there. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think one of the important things to remember in, in this field is not just the these known areas of what's going to be needed to make it happen, but what are the unknown areas? I mean, there's so many ways that this space could unfold. And one of the exciting things, you know, one of the stressful things about being in this space is that, you know, there are so many ways it could unfold and there's a lot of pressure on which way it's going to go and all these potential ways that it could go wrong, right? How public opinion could swiftly change or... You know, the federal government could step in and, and create some really big blowback that could, you know, create a new type of war on drugs or push research back underground. And, you know, a lot of fear still, I think, exists around that, despite all the progress that that's been made. Um, you know, it only takes a few big horror stories to change things. And, you know, it's it's a learning curve, like as markets like Oregon, for example, unfold things are going to go wrong. It's it's not a matter of if they're going to go wrong. It's a matter of when. And it's a matter of, you know, how we respond as a society. Um, and yeah, I would just encourage people thinking about getting involved in the space to also not limit themselves to what exists today, but to think about what kind of space you want to see and create that space and find a role that, that works for you. I mean, Again, like I mentioned, I had no idea psychedelic venture capital existed when I first got started. And that was sort of just where my interests were and where I was gravitating toward. And it happened to kind of work out. Um, Robbie Bent, who, who runs the company Othership that I spoke about, that does the, the breath work and the sauna, the hot cold therapy. I mean, that idea, sure, you know, some of the modalities of breath work and of hot cold therapy, those, those have existed for a long time, but pulling it together and creating this brand and this new space where people can gather and have community and sort of this like you know, mix of a soul cycle slash Soho house kind of vibe to it where you're really making mental health modalities accessible to a new, you know, an entire population of people who weren't open to it before. Like what he's doing is entirely new and novel and if it wasn't him doing it, it just wouldn't exist today. And so I think people just need to follow their passions and, and where they feel compelled 
to kind of build in and where they see that they could be valuable and bring valuable perspective. Um, you know, not every idea might take off and not every idea may work out. But if you don't bring the concerns and, and thoughts and, and ideas that you have to the table, uh, you're you know, leaving it up to chance that someone else will. And, you know, maybe what you have is, is unique or maybe what you have doesn't have enough force behind it. And it requires someone like you to really put the energy behind it to make it happen. Once again, insightful advice. That's great. A lot to think about for our listeners there. Um, and I hope that that helps them kind of think through where they see them, themselves going and and figuring out what they want to do. And especially that idea of like, you know, not just looking at what's there or what's coming up, but what isn't there, you know, and it makes me think about uh, when I do a lot of data analysis, I don't always look at what the data is saying, but I, I more often find myself looking at what is the data not saying. And that usually leads me into uh, some of the more, deeper reflections and, and analysis of what's going on with, with the research that I do. So I think that's really useful to think through. And I think our listeners will find that very informative and helpful. So thank you for that. Sure. Is there anything else that you want to offer or say to our audience? Um, no, I think, I think, I think we have it over and over again, so I don't want to bore people. <laughs> I think you offered them a lot. That's great. Um, so much insightful information. If anyone wants to get a hold of you and ask you any questions or uh, tap into your brain anymore and see what other pieces of information you can provide them, what's the best way that they can reach out to you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if you're interested in learning more about Vine, you can check us out at, at vine.vc. And um, if you have any questions for me and want to connect specifically, feel free to reach me at dt at vine.bc. Happy to, happy to chat. Awesome. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, I'll make sure that I include that contact information in the show notes. Um, thank you so much again for joining me today. Daniel, I learned so much. There's so many things that I'm leaving this conversation to think about more deeply even as I think about, you know, my future in the psychedelic field and the future of psychedelic grad. And, um, and I'm sure our listeners feel the same. So thank you so much again for all of that. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And I, um, I look forward to learning at some point from you because the thesis on transformative experiences at music festivals resonates very hard. And I'm sure you have very interesting insights there. Yeah, it's been a it's been a fun and uh, enlightening project. It's been great. So uh, yeah, we, we can definitely touch on that at some point. <laughs> Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. I want to direct your attention to the show notes once again, where you can find relevant links from our conversation and ways to contact Daniel. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to connect with like-minded spirits, jump over to our Psychedelic Grad community page. You can find the link in the notes below. Also, when you join our community, you'll get a weekly newsletter filled with psychedelic goodies, including psychedelic studies, field announcements, and job openings. If you'd like to support Psychedelic Grad and the Curious to Serious podcast so we can keep the dream alive, click the link in the show notes to donate and buy us a coffee. Finally, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a five-star review and maybe even a comment so that we know we're doing a good job. Thank you again for joining us. I'm your co-host, Gabby. Stay curious, and we look forward to seeing you back here for our next episode of Psychedelic Grad's Curious to Serious podcast. Music.